We're continuing in our series today. We're in week three of five as we overview the book of Acts. Um, Got a lot to cover today, so let's just go ahead and jump on in with prayer and start our time. Father, we thank you for Christ. That as we just sang, he is our life. May we reflect that in the way that we live week in and week out. That Jesus is our life. That in the midst of times in our world that seem uncertain, sometimes even chaotic, that we can stand on the one firm truth that Christ is everything. May we rest in him through your word this morning. May we be challenged and convicted by the spirit as we look at what it means to be a witness for Christ. Lord, may you embolden us as witnesses for Jesus. May your word stir our hearts to live more for you and for your glory rather than for our own. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to just start by asking two questions, kind of just get our thoughts rolling this morning. The first one is, since you have become a Christian, what has changed the most in your life? So I just want you to think about it. Some of you, you might have the answer off the top of your head. Some of you, you might have to think about it. But the second question goes along with it. What's changed the least? What is it, what's aspect of your life that maybe hasn't changed a whole lot since becoming a Christian that maybe you need to surrender more of it to Christ? See, today we're going to cover this big, all sorts of transitions that happen in the book of Acts. And so there's a lot of shifting that happens in Luke's account, but the one theme is central is that there's a value placed on people's lives who have been changed. People who have had their lives changed by being saved by Jesus. That's the one consistent theme that we're going to see today. You see it throughout all of Acts, but especially today. So we finished last week with our three good examples of witnesses as we came up into chapter 9. So we had Stephen, who was the honest witness, who wasn't willing to hold back the truth of the message of the gospel. We have Philip, the faithful witness, the one who didn't really get noticed, but he was faithful to share the gospel. And we saw the Samaritans come to faith through his ministry. And we have Saul, who becomes Paul, the unexpected witness, right? The guy who was killing the Christians, and now all of a sudden is a Christian, not only is a Christian, but he's going to be the one who's preaching Christ to all the unclean Gentiles, which was totally unexpected. At the end of the section from last week, we saw that the churches were growing in numbers and in their maturity in the faith. And as we come up to the end of chapter 9, we see two people used by God that are really unknown. We see their names listed here, but we don't really know much about them before or after this. So that's why the title of this first point is the value of unseen faithfulness. 
The focus shifts from Saul, who becomes Paul, back to Peter. Peter's traveling around this area where people have been saved. It says he's been traveling around Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And he comes to a small town called Lydda. And he comes across Aeneas, a man who's been bedridden for eight years. And Peter tells him, Jesus heals you. And the man rises and walks. And the whole town sees this. And right after that, we see there's a woman named Tabitha in a town called Joppa, another small town. She's full of good works and full of charity. She's a believer in Jesus. She's, she's serving the widows in this town. She gets sick and dies. But Joppa, not being far from Lydda, the disciples say, let's go get Peter. They have faith that Peter can raise Tabitha from the dead. So they go get him, bring him to Joppa, and he comes. The widows are already weeping over her death. She's already been put in the upper room. Peter puts everybody outside, and he comes to her, and he says, Tabitha, rise. She wakes up. She looks at Peter and gets up. And Peter presents her to all the people now alive. And again, all of Joppa hears about this. It shows us right from the get-go, God cares about those who are the unseen people. Right? We see first here that God heals them. God restores them back to life. He genuinely cares for those people, the believers who are not the ones doing the signs and wonders like the apostles. God even cares about the small town faithful believers who nobody knows about. But it's more than just he values them and cares for them. We see that God uses them. Look at chapter 9, verse 35. This is about Aeneas. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Simply by the witness of Aeneas, a man who was disabled in a small town, it says two towns saw him, and it says they turned to the Lord, almost giving an implication like the whole town turned. Simply by the witness of a faithful man disabled for eight years in a small town that we've never heard of up until this point, and we're never going to hear about again. And then we turn to Tabitha, faithfully serving the widows. Gets sick, dies. Peter comes and raises her back to life. Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Aeneas, Tabitha, unseen people, faithful to Christ. And we have towns hearing about it. And we have all these people, many people in one town, and it almost sounds like all people in other towns, believing in Jesus by their faithfulness. May this be a reminder for us that if you pursue after being faithful to Christ, God will honor it no matter how unseen you feel. Does anybody know the name Mordecai Ham? 
Some of you might, some of you maybe not. Mordecai Ham is the faithful evangelist that was preaching the day Billy Graham got saved. Anybody know Mordecai Ham? Anybody know Billy Graham? Unseen faithfulness. Anybody know Scott Williams? Probably not. You might know a Scott Williams, but you might not know my Scott Williams. Scott Williams was the most influential youth pastor I had in my growing up. Unseen faithfulness. My life radically shifted because of him and his witness. You have no idea how many people your faithfulness can touch. And it's not about numbers. All it is is about us seeking each and every day to be faithful, to display Jesus, and to speak about Jesus. I honestly don't know if we as a church here even have the slightest idea what God could do with just our church if we all would commit ourselves to unseen faithfulness. That no matter where we're at, whatever opportunities present for us, if we all said, I'm going to be faithful to display and share Jesus in every opportunity, I think we'd be amazed what God would do with us. Just think about how many lives would be changed. Just think about whether people even believed in Jesus or not. Think about the fact that we could cover this county with the gospel. That we could say, possibly as a church, along with all the other churches in the county, but if just we ourselves as a church committed to being faithful to Christ, could we say that the entire county, Switzerland County, would at least have been reached with the gospel. Whether they believed it or not, that's between them and God. But at least they've been reached with the gospel. There's not a person who lives in the county that doesn't know Christ and what he's done for them. But as we go into chapter 10, we're going to see another shift here. So we we go from small town faithfulness to a historical barrier that's been waiting for centuries to be broken down. And we're going to see that it happens here. So the next title of our, our next point is called Trusting God's Unanticipated Plan. Though the Old Testament spoke of this plan, Israel missed it. They weren't expecting this to happen. They weren't anticipating it. So Peter's hanging out in Joppa with a man named Simon who's a tanner, right? He tans the animal skins, which should give us a hint of what's about to happen here because if Simon's spending so much time with animal skins, it means he's spending time with dead animals, which means he's unclean. And Peter, as a Jew, isn't supposed to be around the unclean people. Yet Peter's staying with him. So we can hint at a little bit what's going to happen here. And then Luke switches to a man named Cornelius. We're told that he's a devoted man who fears God, that he's generous, that he prays. The term God-fear here is one who wasn't part of the Jewish faith, but one who worshipped the God of the Jewish faith. So Cornelius believes in the same God that Israel follows, but he hadn't been converted to Judaism because he hadn't been circumcised and wasn't following the law. We also find out that Cornelius is a Roman centurion, so he's part of the Roman army, has a hundred men who are under his command. Needless to say, Cornelius is a Gentile. He He worships the true God, but he's not been converted to Judaism, he's not a Jew, and he's serving Rome. 
So he's a Gentile. So as he's praying one day, an angel comes to him in a vision. And he tells them that God is pleased with him. He has the right heart before the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord in the right way. So he says, there's a man in Joppa I want you to go get. His name's Peter. So Cornelius sends some of his men to Joppa to find whoever this guy named Peter is. But then now Luke switches back to Peter's story. Peter's in Joppa. What's Peter doing? Much like Cornelius, he's praying. And Peter has a vision. And in his vision, he has this sheet in front of him, and it's filled with all sorts of animals. And a voice comes to Peter and says, Go ahead, kill and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, says, I've never eaten anything unclean. Never. So he refuses to eat. And look at what it says. We see this cosmic shift in the waters here. Look at verse 15 of chapter 10. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. That's what Peter says. He says, there's unclean things, there's common things there I'm not supposed to be eating of. And this says, whatever God's made clean, don't call common anymore. You catch what just happened? For centuries, there were certain animals that weren't allowed to be eaten by the Jews. And God has now declared them all clean. All the dietary laws of the Old Testament have just been pulled back. But it's bigger than that. It's not just about the dietary laws. We're about to see that the whole point here is the gospel is going to, a door is going to open for the gospel to go to a whole group of people that it never went to before. There's a whole group of people that have been eating those foods that now are able to be made clean. The foods no longer stop them from entering the kingdom. Peter has this vision three times and is massively confused by it. But then the men from Cornelius show up. And the angel tells Peter, he says, there's men looking for you. Peter goes down, meets them, invites them in. The next day he goes with them to Cornelius. Peter hears the story of Cornelius' vision. And finally it clicks. Peter understands now that the sheet of animals was not just about animals. It's about a whole group of unclean people, the Gentiles, which basically is to the ends of the earth. Everybody else that's not a Jew. And so Peter responds in chapter 10, verse 34. He says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter understands now. He says anybody that fears the Lord can come to him. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus isn't just Lord of the Jews. He's he's Lord over everyone. So anybody that comes to Christ, is able to have peace with God. He even goes on in verse 43, he says, 
to him, to Jesus, all the prophets, Old Testament, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Anyone who believes, not just the Jews, anyone, everyone who puts their faith in Christ can have forgiveness from their sin. And as Peter shares this with Cornelius and those around, they believe. They trust in Jesus. And what ends up happening here at the end of chapter 10 is the Gentiles have their own little version of Pentecost. Do you remember Acts chapter 2, what happened at Pentecost? The Spirit came, they started speaking with tongues, right? That's what happens here. The Spirit comes upon them, the people, Gentiles start speaking in tongues, they all get baptized. They have this own little version here showing salvation has now come to the final group of people, which are the Gentiles, which is the rest of the world, essentially. So Peter says, I got to tell somebody. So Peter runs to Jerusalem, right? This central hub at this point for Christians. And he reports to them what's happened. The Gentiles have believed. And the Jews are like, I can't believe you ate with them. The Jews can't even get over the fact that he ate with them, let alone shared the gospel with them, and now they've believed and received the Spirit and spoken tongues and have gotten baptized. We hear this and we think, how silly. Those Jews just can't get it. But are we really all that different today? Is there anybody in your life that somebody could come tell you so-and-so believed in Jesus and you'd be like, You sure? Question it or doubt it? Because there's a certain group of people that are just too unclean that you can't expect they would come to Jesus. Peter goes on and shares his vision that he had. He shares Cornelius' vision and the whole experience of what happened. He shared the gospel. People believed. The Spirit came. And Peter makes a statement here that just nails what exactly is happening. Chapter 11, verse 17, he says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter says, who was I to stand in God's way? Basically, God told, is telling Peter, get on board or get left behind. It's like a, a current of water, right? The culture is going one way. God's going one way. Israel's going a certain direction. And now with the Gentiles, God kind of puts a fork in the water and says, the current's going to start going this way. Now you, Peter, can decide to continue down the path that Israel's continued on, that the Jews are continuing down, to refuse to believe in Jesus, continue to follow the Old Testament dietary laws, and just continue to think that that's what keeps you safe and good. Or you can follow this new current that I'm, I'm going with here, where the Gentiles can get saved because it's not about the laws anymore, but it's about Jesus. And Peter says, I'm going with your current, God. And we see others follow his response. After Peter shares this, they say, 
I guess salvation's been offered to the Gentiles. Praise God. They glorify God because of this. And we see this theme of God's unanticipated plan continue on. As the persecution continues to happen, the gospel spreads to all sorts of cities. We come to a city called Antioch, a Gentile city. They've turned to the Lord. Barnabas goes there to encourage them. Barnabas says, we need Saul here. So he goes and gets Saul and brings him there. We have a prophet named Agabus that tells of a famine that's going to happen in Judea. So Antioch, the Gentiles, gather a collection of money to send to the Jews. Because they're about to have a famine. Think about that dynamic for a second. The Jews have barriered off the Gentiles for centuries. You're so unclean. We can't talk to you. We can't deal with you. We're not going to be in a relationship with you. Now the gospel just barely goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, you're going to have a famine. We're going to gather money and send it to you. Even though after all these years, you've had these barriers up. So Antioch gets the collection for them. We go into chapter 12. We see kind of the opposite end, right? So we have a good aspect of the gospel going, but we also have persecution happening. John's brother James is killed by Herod. Peter's put in prison. The church, the believers, are pray for Peter. An angel comes and saves him in the night. Peter first thinks this is just a vision, but then once the angel leaves, he realizes he's actually out of prison. So he goes to the house where there's believers. Right? Kind of a funny story happens there. He like knocks on the door. The servant comes and sees that it's Peter and runs back inside without opening the door to him. And tells everyone that Peter's there. And they're like, it must be a ghost. But then they realize it's really Peter. So they gather together and they're encouraged and rejoice in the fact that God has saved Peter. Peter goes on. He moves on to another town. And Herod kills the soldiers that were supposed to be watching Peter. Herod is so upset. And that's the point here. Herod is the exact example of what you don't do to trust the Lord. Herod is the example of not trusting in God's unanticipated plan. Just listen, Herod's dealing with a situation of people coming to him, asking for peace between him and this nation that they're a part of. And listen to what happens here at the end of chapter 12. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod not only kills and arrests Christians, but he allows people to call him God or a God. And he takes in all this glory. And in an instant... He breathes his last. And it says, he's eaten up by worms. All this displays a contrast. Are you going to get on board with God's plan? Are you going to try to take your own route? Even in the midst of unanticipated times, we have to answer the question. Are you going to stand in God's way? Or are you going to walk with him? 
like Peter, sometimes God changes the current of our life. How about COVID? You see, we have a culture around us that doesn't believe in God, that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they want to continue down their same old path. We're going to run to sin as fast as we can, as quick as we can, as deep as we can. God shifted the current here. Are you going to walk along with what God's doing? Are you going to try to continue to do things the old way? You see, Peter could have complained when he got that vision about the unclean animals. He could have complained and said, I'm confused by this. God, why are you even telling me this? I don't even understand what's going on here. But instead, he said, there's some men showing up who are unclean. that are going to take me to an unclean man. I'm going to trust that God's doing something here. Do you see what God has done for you in COVID? Did God open the door for you to spend more time at home with your family where you can teach them about the Lord? Did God give you more time at home so that you could spend more time in his word and growing in your relationship with him? Maybe God gave you life situations of people around you where they were desperate to hear something hopeful and you were able to be a witness of Christ or should have been a witness of Christ to them. Sometimes God shifts the current, and it's really unanticipated. And we got to make the decision, am I going to stand in his way, or am I going to follow along with whatever current God's leading me with? And we see that this is just the beginning of the shift of the tides here. right? As we get into chapter 13 and 14, we see Paul and Barnabas go on their first of three missionary journeys for Paul. And all we're going to see here in these chapters is Paul's message of salvation. right? He goes to a number of cities. He goes to Seleucia, Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, Perga, another Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. And then he makes his way back to some of those same cities on his way back to his home base of Antioch, what sent him and Barnabas out together. But there's two aspects that I just want us to hit of Paul's ministry on his first missionary journey. First, he gives a message of salvation. Over and over in these chapters, it's mentioned the word of God, the teaching of the Lord, the good news, the word of the Lord, the gospel, the word of grace. Just listen to Paul's summary of what he's sharing with all of these cities. He just got done quoting Psalm 16, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Paul's going to say, he's talking about Jesus here. Chapter 13, verse 36. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Paul shares the message of the resurrected Jesus through whom forgiveness of sins is offered. By Christ, all who believe are freed, are saved from what the law couldn't save us from, which is our own sin. The people in these cities respond to the message, right? Many believe. There's joy in these cities. The Spirit comes to these cities. 
Though not all respond, right? There's a false prophet that Paul blinds in the process. There's persecution. Paul gets stoned to the point that they actually think he's dead. But the point of it all is clear. Luke's pointing us and saying, salvation is now to the Gentiles. And in the midst of facing death, time and time again, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas hold on to their driving force, their motivation, which is that there is a message of salvation for those who would trust in Christ. And then his second aspect of the ministry is that he has a desire for people to grow in this salvation. Not just that they get saved, but as they make their way back to these same cities on their way back, he stops and wants them to grow in this salvation. Albert's about to turn one, just as an example. Albert at one year old, right, most of you know this, gets taken off of his formula and gets put on regular milk, and he's already eating food, but he gets, starts to eat other types of food. If Albert turns four and is still on three or four bottles a day of formula, there's something wrong. There's a problem there. And that's what Paul's kind of hinting at. Paul's saying, you don't just get saved and look the same for the next 10, 20 years. There's a growth that's meant to happen. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. There's five things they do. We're not going to go in depth on them. I just want to mention them. There's five things Paul and Barnabas do. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that many, by many, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul encourages them. He strengthens them. He tells them, through persecution, you're going to enter the kingdom. He appoints leaders for them. And then they pray and fast and commit them to the Lord because Paul and Barnabas can't stay with them forever. Do we share Paul's passion? For first, the message of salvation, and second, for the desire to see people grow in that salvation. We have to ask, when's the last time I shared the gospel with somebody? Do we really believe that God, through Christ, the message of Christ, actually saves people? He rescues people. If we believe that... Wouldn't that affect the way that we tell people about it? And then do we place a priority on growing that once somebody has believed? I'm not just asking, do you come to church or do you pray before a meal? But I'm saying, do you spend your life pushing others to Jesus? Teaching your family to go to Jesus? talking to your co-workers or, about your, or maybe your other church members throughout the week, finding ways to communicate with them and push them towards Jesus? Or are you yourself growing in your walk with Jesus? We get to the final chapter here in chapter 15, and we see something has to happen because Paul and Barnabas make their way back, and now they have men coming to them and say, all those Gentiles need to be circumcised. They all need to follow the law. And Paul is like, uh-uh. That, we, I thought we covered this. This is just 
by faith in Christ. It's not about the law anymore. So they go to Jerusalem to the apostles. And we see Peter stand up and he makes a statement of the gospel. Right? So we see a statement of the gospel and we see a statement of what the Christian life is meant to look like. Look at verse 7, chapter 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's five aspects of Peter's gospel message. He says, first, it's a heart change. Hearts have been cleansed. We often get so focused in our world, especially even as Christians, on external behaviors that we forget that there's an inner person causing those external behaviors. God's not interested in behavior modification. He's interested in heart transformation. If our hearts aren't changed, God's not interested. He says that it's a gospel that's of faith, right? That's the whole point of all of this, of what they're discussing at this point. He's saying, it's not by the law. You can't, there's not a list of laws to get your salvation. You can't do anything to earn it. You only can rest and trust in what Christ has already done. We already hit this third point a little, but it's a message of salvation. He says, we believe we will be saved. So Peter's saying, we need rescued from something, We need saved. And that's what Christ offers is a rescue from our sin. He says that it's through grace. This is a message that's been initiated by God. If God hadn't acted by sending Jesus, we have no hope. You couldn't do anything to make your way to God. God had to come to us. And that's what he does. Before the foundations of the world, God set forth this plan that would culminate in Jesus. And then he says that the central figure of this message is Jesus. He's the one who our hearts are changed by. He's the one our faith rests in. He's the one we're saved through. And he's the one we receive grace from. His perfect life His death in your place and his glorious resurrection is offered to us. And then he goes on to give two aspects of the Christian life. He actually lists four things, but it's summarized in two ways. So let me just summarize them for you real quick. First one is he encourages the Gentiles. They write a letter to them saying, you don't have to follow the law, but we encourage you to do these four things. The first thing is he says, we want you to love God. Essentially, what he really tells them to do is he says, keep away from idols. Stay away from the idolatry you once lived in, which really is saying, love God. And then the second one is he says, love others. Love your neighbor. He tells them to keep themselves from blood, from things that are strangled, 
Why? Not because they were necessarily unclean anymore. We found that out. The whole point is they have Jewish unbelievers around them that he doesn't want them to ruin their witness to. And so he says, do everything you can to love the people around you, believers and unbelievers, so that as to not put anything, any obstacle or stumbling block in their way so that they may come to Christ. Love God and love the people around you. Does this summarize our lives? Does this summarize your life that you believe you're saved by faith alone, not that you have to do any sort of works or follow any sorts of laws in order to be saved. Now, you live a certain way because you are saved, but you don't live that way in order to earn your salvation. Has your heart been changed by the gospel? We like to treat... I think of kids as an example for this, probably because I have them, but... I was reading through Proverbs this week, and we tend to think our kids do foolish things when they disobey, right? It's foolishness. I was reading Proverbs, though, and the Proverbs says, it's, it's clear, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly isn't just some external foolish behavior of what they do when they disobey. The reality is, and it's not just a child, it's all of us, our hearts are bound to folly. And Christ changes our hearts. It doesn't mean we won't sin anymore, but it means he gives us the power to not choose folly anymore. And then we have to ask, am I loving the Lord and am I loving the people around me the way that I'm called to? I think sometimes we can miss how radically different our lives are supposed to look as Christians. Let me just end with a story and we'll be done. This guy, Wayne Cordero, maybe you've seen it. There's this thing going around Facebook, this little blip of one of his sermons. But he tells the story of he got to go to China to teach some Christian leaders there. So he gets there and he's waiting in this room. And it's this little tiny room, all wooden floors in it. 22 Chinese leaders travel 13 hours by train to come listen to him for three days to teach them about the Bible. And for three days, they sit there on the floor. And when they say they want to hear teaching, it's like eight to five teaching. Like it's not, oh, we'll learn for an hour or two, then we'll go do. I mean, it's all day long. They want to learn the Bible. So they sit there on wooden floors for three days, facing prison, mind you. They have to go up two by two up the elevator as to not have people notice how many of them are gathering in a room together. And this pastor asked them, he says, let's just get started with this. What would happen to me if we got caught? And they said, you'd be deported in 24 hours. He's like, okay, what would happen to you? They said, we'd go to prison for three years. He said, how many of you have already been to prison? 18 of the 22 guys raised their hands. So he hands out Bibles. He has 15 Bibles. So that means there's seven people without a Bible. 
And he says, let's open to 2 Peter chapter 1. And he notices a lady who hands her Bible to another person. And he's kind of like, that's strange. But anyway, he starts reading out of it, and he notices why she handed it off. She's reciting it along with him. And so he comes up to her afterwards, and he says, I noticed you had that memorized. He's like, how'd you, how'd you do that? And she says, you had a lot of time in prison. And he said, but don't they take your Bibles away in prison? She says, yeah. We have other Christians write us handwritten notes with chapters of the Bible written on them, and then we memorize them off of that. And he says, but don't they take those notes away from you? And she said, yeah, you got to memorize very fast when you're in prison. And so he finishes his three-day session with them. And he says, what can I pray for, for you guys? And they tell him, they say, sir, you can meet any time you want in America. You cannot fear telling other people about Jesus. You don't have to fear teaching about Jesus. You can sit down and have these discussions anytime. Pray that one day we'll be able to do the same here. And the pastor looks at him and says, no. And you can imagine, they're like, eyes get real big. They're like, why won't you pray? And he said, let me tell you guys something. You traveled 13 hours to get here. We can barely get people to travel one in America. He said, you guys sat here for three days on wooden floors. We're lucky if we can get people to sit for an hour in a pew. He says, you guys memorize scripture off of handwritten notes while you're sitting in prison. In America, we have the average of two Bibles per family, and they rarely get opened. I'm not going to pray that you will get the chances we have. I will pray that we become more like you. I think we often forget as Christians in America how radically different our lives are supposed to look. So as we close our time, if there's anybody in here or listening online and you've never trusted in Jesus, may you trust in him today and realize that it's going to be a radical change for your life, but it's one that is for the better. It's one that's by far worth any sacrifice of giving up what he may ever ask you to give up. I would encourage those who are at home this morning to join with us. One thing we see over and over in Acts is the believers gathering together with each other. I don't know about you guys, but I look forward to Sunday mornings to spending time with you. I'm encouraged by being with other believers. And for those of us who do know Jesus, may this gospel that changes our hearts, this gospel by faith, this gospel that we are saved, this gospel that God graciously gives us, this gospel centered on Jesus, may it stir a passion for us to trust in him regardless of what that plan looks like and to love the people around us to be faithful even when we're not being seen. Let's pray together. Father, 
change us. Convict us in the aspects of our lives that have not become to look like Jesus. Make us more like our brothers and sisters around the world that are willing to sacrifice everything because they love Jesus. May we have our hearts desire him, desire you so much that nothing else in this world could stand in the way. May we, may we walk whatever current that you put in our path, Lord. May we follow wherever you're headed and not the way that the world's headed. May we commit ourselves to the things that you love and that are pleasing to you, not to the things that we might selfishly desire, the things that the world tells us to go after. May we not grow complacent in our walk with you here in our churches in America, but may we grow in our walk with you, that we would be willing to display Jesus to those around us, that we would speak Jesus to those around us, that we would have our own lives just saturated with Scripture to the point that our lives can't help but look like Jesus. May we remember this gospel this week and throughout our lives, but especially as we go until we meet again. This reminder as we close that Jesus paid it all. That this is the gospel that we love. This is the gospel that our hope rests in. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.